1: Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a buddy calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. He's a legendary American singer, songwriter, Mr. James Talley. Welcome, James, to the unimpressed podcast. How are you doing, James? Fine. Thank you, John. So what's going on with you? And I know you have a, a, a book you just, uh, are, are putting out there to the world and, got some stories in there and so forth and i like to kind of interview people from the foundation up and just figure out who they are what they're about and you know what led you down this path and this journey so maybe somebody can learn some stuff from you know who wants to be a country artist and uh the ties to oklahoma so where's your family from
2: my family's all from oklahoma my grandparents and my 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 parents my mother's actually born up in kansas but she grew up her entire life in oklahoma
1: what town was that in
2: well they were farmers just east of stillwater a little town called glencoe and their farm was between stillwater and glencoe and then my father was from up in the northeastern part of the state up in welch oklahoma which is about eight miles from the kansas border and he grew up up there in that little town and uh, they met during world war ii when they were both working at a munitions plant in Pryor, oklahoma and uh my mother was a school teacher and, and uh, when the war broke out she quit teaching and went to work for dupont in Pryor, making gunpowder she met my father there and that's how it worked out
1: well i i kind of have a rationale about talent about how talent conveys tone and i think environment has a lot to do with that what were your inspirations you know in oklahoma in music to kind of push you to where you're at today
2: i spent a lot of time with my grandparents there in a little town called mehan where they had a home after they quit farming and uh, it was a a rich cultural environment you know they were country people and it was just a, a little house and four-room house and had a wood stove in it and a well out on the back porch and an outhouse out behind the chicken coop my entire first album was probably uh inspired by my family in oklahoma and growing up that way and when i got interested in music i was living in albuquerque new mexico that's where my parents wound up uh we moved up to the state of washington first uh uh, during the war when they were building the uh, atomic reactor at hanford uh they built it in 18 months where they made the plutonium for the fat man bomb that was dropped over Nagasaki, Japan on August 9 1945. And then they came back to Oklahoma and my uh, father got word that they were hiring again up at Hanford. And so in 1947, he went back up to Hanford and Worked as a chemical handler in the reactor. And uh, they, they were afraid that it was his health that was being compromised, and so they moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where my mother's brother was living at the time. And uh, after we moved there, they discovered a big tumor on his right lung, and they had to cut about half of his lung out. But I was in Albuquerque in high school, and I I got interested in the Kingston Trio because I loved the folk songs that they were playing and the stories in the song. And it was through them that I became aware of Woody Guthrie and and all kinds of other blues singers and Pete Seeger and different people like that. And uh, I became interested in music. And I, I started out as a, I wanted to be a painter, an artist. I studied that in college. I had a degree in painting and a double major in art history. And I went out to UCLA to graduate school in, in painting. And, but while I was out there, I read uh, Woody Guthrie's book, uh, Born to Win. And uh, he said, the paint on your tractor is pretty to me, that ordinary things could be beautiful and artistic. And I got interested. I said, gee, you know, I had played songs since I was in high school and sang all these songs, you know, and played the guitar. But it never occurred to me to start writing to write my own songs. It just never was something that even crossed my mind. And when I read that book, I, I thought, well, maybe I could write songs too. And so I began to try to write some songs and I was back in uh, New Mexico in 1967 and Pete Seeger came to town and one of my English professors knew the people he was staying with there in town and uh, he agreed to come over and meet me the next day after his concert and listen to some of my songs and uh, he came over and knocked on the door and came in and a few pleasantries I was renting this little adobe house out uh west of Old Town in Albuquerque. After we talked for a while, he just sprawled out on my pinewood floor and clasped his hands back behind his head and said, play me some of your songs. So I played the songs and he gave me some advice that I followed the rest of my life and I passed on to other young songwriters. And he said, you know, you've got a good voice, But he said, uh, don't try to write folk songs like you hear coming out of New York City. He said, you're from the Southwest. He said, write about the things that you know. Write about your family. Write about what you see out here. Write about the people in your area. He says, if you think about it, that's what Woody Guthrie did. Mm-hmm. He wrote about what he saw and experienced. He says, if you'll do that, he said, the rest of it will take care of itself. And so uh, that's kind of, you know, soon after that, I, I decided to move to Nashville. I'd already lived in Los Angeles. I didn't much care for the sprawl of that big city. And New York City seemed like the other side of the moon to somebody from rural New Mexico. And uh, Nashville seemed like a more smaller city and a recording center, and so I decided to move to Nashville.
1: When you moved to Nashville, who were the big players in Nashville at the time?
2: Marty Robbins was a huge act at the time. See, I don't know I'm trying to think of who back then was a big act. I don't know I'm hitting a hitting the senior moment here, but uh, <laughs> well, it was, you- it was an interesting time. Uh, I mean, what I discovered when I came to Nashville was I had a bunch of songs I'd written about the Hispanic families in New Mexico. I I would worked for a year as a welfare caseworker before I moved to Nashville. And I was writing songs about these people like Seeger told me to do. And I had a bunch of songs I would written that I was very proud of about the situation in in poverty in New Mexico. And there's a lot of it there. And so I came to Nashville and I discovered that nobody in Nashville was interested in poor Hispanics uh, from New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And Nashville uh, minds a certain type of a song. uh, they, they want basically stories about uh, people, love, love, love stories, basically. And uh, I was not real good at writing that at that time. And so I, uh, I found a music publisher that was interested in working with me. It was uh, the Glazer Brothers. The Glazer Brothers were a, a trio of three brothers, that uh, uh, Chuck Glazer, Jim Glazer, and Tom Paul Glazer that, that did backup work on records and they had sung uh, the backup harmonies and everything on marty robbins uh, album uh, gunfighter ballads and trail songs which i had really loved you know they had el paso on it and and a bunch of songs like that and uh, so i started working with chuck glazer who was running their publishing company and he would listen to my songs and, and i was trying to fit into what nashville did and write you know, the kind of things that were
1: more commercial.
2: But I never could really fit well into that. And
1: um I, I do, you think feel, it, do you think it was more just trying to expand like a more universal relatability in a way? Is what they were trying to pull out of you?
2: Well I think they were trying to pull out of me more commercial work. You know, I mean mm-hmm. basically Nashville likes love songs. I mean they told me uh, you know well I want you to write songs that put women up on a pedestal. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean Women deserve to be on the pedestal, and I mean, think about Charlie. Uh, Charlie's song, uh, "Kiss an Angel Good Morning." You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that they love. That kind of stuff. They said women are the listeners on country radio, and country radio then was not like it is today. I mean, it was a very conservative, older demographic, and that's what they that's what they wanted. And that, and Nashville's all about making money from this. I mean, it's not about art; it's about the money that's made, and uh, so that's what they were trying to get me to do, and I just kept having a difficult time with that. One day, I went over to see uh, United Artists Publishing, and I had demoed these songs from the Southwest, uh, which eventually became the album *The Road to Torreon*. And Billy Ed Wheeler, who I have a lot of respect for, as a great songwriter, was working for United Artists at the time, listening to songs, and young artists that came in the door. And, and so I played these songs for him and, and he said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know what we could do with this in Nashville. He says, you know, this is like sociology. And he says, uh, you know, they're good songs, but he says, you need to be the artist on these songs yourself. And uh, he says, you've got a good voice. He said, uh, you know, re- you, you should really try and record these yourself. And, and of course, I had no idea how to do that, and and so I got to thinking about it, and I said, well, maybe I'll go to New York and and see if John Hammond is interested in these songs. And John Hammond, of course, uh, was one of the great talent scouts of the 20th century. I mean, everybody from Bessie Smith to Count Basie to Benny Goodman to Bob Dylan to Leonard Cohen to Bruce Springsteen, I mean, he was a tremendous you know, picker of talent, let's say. And uh, so I wrote him, I wrote it to him in New York and I said, if I come to New York, would you meet with me? And he said, yes, I will. Wrote back and, and so I went to New York and I had this meeting with him and he played the songs and, and he looked at the photographs uh, for the book. I was trying to, trying to get it published as a song cycle, along with the photographs of my friend Cavalier Ketchum, uh, who had an MFA and photography and had taken photographs in the hispanic villages around new mexico and and uh, so i showed him in the photographs and, and they're outstanding photographs and he just loved the idea and he sent me over to see uh aaron asher at holt reinhardt and winston and i went back to see him the next day and everybody was excited and and he took me over to meet uh, goddard lieberson who was the chairman of cbs records at the time and everything looked great but then i had to meet with uh clive davis Who was president of the label at the time and uh, they set up a meeting with clive and i in memphis and he was going to be there for the memphis music awards and as it turned out i had to be down there for a public health conference i was working for the state health department at the time and uh, i had that meeting with clive and i played him several of my songs and he had a bunch of his young assistants there and they were all sitting there you know not not giving up anything. And after the meeting, he walked me back down the hall to the elevator and said, well, you're, you're obviously a very talented young man. He says, we'll be back in touch with you. It was just the way the meeting went and that we'll be back in touch with you that, uh, you know, it just didn't didn't feel right. huh? Didn't feel right. Yeah. And so, uh, You know, nobody got back in touch. And then the next thing I know, I got a call from Jerry Wexler in New York. I was out in the backyard at my house, and my wife came out and said, I have a New York named Jerry Wexler on the phone. I went in and answered the phone. I knew who Jerry Wexler was. He was you know, one of the heads of Atlantic Records. And he said, you know, this is Jerry Wexler in New York. I want to sign you to Atlantic Records. And so Jerry came down and signed me to Atlantic. And as it turned out, when Hammond couldn't get the deal done at, at uh, Columbia, he sent my tapes over to Wexler at Atlantic. And that's how I got signed at Atlantic.
1: You know, you hear about deals back in the day. Did you get a good deal for that time period, you think? Because it was a whole different ball game back then.
2: Yeah, I mean... I think it was a fair deal. Um, it was a call for us to deliver an album the first year. and but, but Jerry said, I want to sign you. And he says, I want you to write. He says, you're a great writer. He says, I want you to, he says, how much money do you make at your job? And I says, well, I make uh, $900 a month. He said, well, I'm going to pay you $250 a week. And I want you to write songs for me for a year. And so, you know, I, during that year, I mean, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I mean, every night. I would write I just I just rarely missed a night that I didn't write and so I had all these songs and as it turned out, Jerry was going through his midlife crisis at the time and he had divorced his wife of 25 years and married his 27 uh, year old secretary and uh, you know we've seen that play before, yeah over and over. so not much happened with Atlantic. And I had recorded my first album on spec. I had a, an attorney at the time who wanted to get into the music business, uh, Larry Burton, and he was a uh you know, from a, a wealthy family in Nashville, and he he built this studio. Uh, it was called Hounds Ear Studio, and and I had recorded my first album actually while I was under contract to Atlantic. But the communication was so poor and everything that Larry advised me. He says I don't want to send this album to Atlantic. He says it's too good, and and he says they're not doing anything. So um, I finished my first album. That was. Got no bread, no milk, no money, but we sure got a lot of love. At the end of the year, I was off of Atlantic, and the money stopped, and I had this master sitting there that I didn't know what to do with, and I had no contacts in the music business and and everything. And and so I went back to working as a carpenter, which I knew how to do, and I worked there, uh, I guess, for a couple of years as a carpenter on a bunch of big jobs in Nashville. There's one hotel out there, the Preston Hotel now that... I-40 and Briley Parkway that I hung over 700 doors in. Then I got uh, a call one day, um, I was down at, at Capitol Records for some reason, I don't remember what I was doing down there, but uh, Audie Ashworth, who was a producer and he also managed J.J. Cale, he said, you're a carpenter, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, Frank Jones, who's uh, head of Capitol Records uh, Country Division, is moving back to Nashville. He says he's been in, out in Los Angeles and um, he said he's finally convinced him that the head of the country division should be in, in Nashville, not in Los Angeles. And he's living back here, and he says he's bought a house, but it needs some remodeling. He says, is that something that you could do? And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure I could do it. But he says, I've got a full-time job, and I'm, you know, working all day. I have to do it on the weekends. He said, well, that'd be all right, because he won't be here for another couple of months. Uh, Carpenter, I was working with Jerry Leroy, and I went out there and fixed the house up for Frank. And at that same time, I had taken this first album, and I had several people that really loved my music, and they had given me, each one of them gave me a thousand dollars. And so I pressed up a thousand copies of that first album on my own, and uh hired an independent promotion company here and they sent them all out to radio and so about the time that frank came back from california he said that each morning when he woke up he'd hear my song take me to the country on uh wsix the fm easy listening station and then as he was driving to the office during drive time he'd hear my song give him another bottle on the country station the a.m country station and so uh when, one day he came out and we were working on the house, and Jerry, my partner, said, uh, "Frank, you need to hear James's album." He says it's terrific, and uh, so Jerry ran out to the trunk of the car and got an album and gave it to Frank. Frank was a very nice guy, Canadian, and very polite, and said, "Oh, I'd love to hear this." And so we finished his house, and and uh, I got a call from him, and he said, "You know," he says, "this is a, a tremendous album," and he said, "Let me uh, give me a couple weeks to get." you know, squared away here in the office, and, and I'd like to talk to you about it. So that led to my being signed by Capitol Records. And I mean, it was, as I've said in my book, I said, you know, it was like coming through the back door. I mean, you know, I, I didn't get, I couldn't meet any record executives, you know, getting into their offices because they were all, you know, had gatekeepers out front, you know, that turned mm-hmm. people away and they just didn't, didn't want to, you know, see anybody. They weren't like John Hammond. I mean, he was very open to see people and uh, they were very cloistered here in nashville and so i i managed to get a record deal through the back door as a carpenter
1: pretty good now are you are you native are you native american a little bit
2: i've got some cherokee blood uh, my my father's mother was a quarter cherokee so i guess that makes me 16th
1: and do you think that's where i'm i'm Cher, i'm Cherokee Indian as well and i'm a i'm a clairsentient mm-hmm. so i can pick up on people's energy and that's just what i picked up from you and just I don't know, from the sensitivities of being a painter, sensitivities of, you know, being a song, singer, songwriter and having that talent. I think there's something to that. You know, I've met a lot of people that kind of fit in that vein. Have you ever thought about that, you know, kind of having a very, that, that kind of feeling and so forth?
2: Well, I've always been very attuned to Native American things. And I've written a number of songs about Native Americans, uh, like, uh, my song, the song of chief Joseph. And I wrote another song uh, about crazy horse. Uh, I wrote another song about reservation life, you know, called the whiskey and the beer, you know. Chief Joseph was always sort of my my idol after reading about the Nez Perce War of 1877. And I think, you know, whenever I get down and, and everything, I think about everything that he and his people went through. And I say, you know, what I'm going through is just, <laughs> it doesn't matter you know i mean nobody's shooting at me or anything like that you know and and uh you know i don't know about what you're saying i mean whether that's true or not but uh i've always had a sensitivity to the underdog i mean i guess it was my father who was always that way and and being from Oklahoma, you know, the people there went through an awful lot during the Depression. And uh, my time as a welfare case worker in New Mexico, which was probably one of the most meaningful jobs I ever had in my life, you know, doesn't pay anything because in America we don't, you know, do anything for our poor and we don't want to pay anybody that deals with it you know poverty in america is by design it's not ha- happenstance it's designed to be that way but uh, i suppose you know there may be something about my native Americanness. i mean my wife is cherokee on both sides of her family she's probably about half
1: cherokee and now you're, is your wife from the same place hey, that's why i was attracted to her she's from <laughs>
2: tennessee she's a native nashvillian
1: Okay. After I moved here, you know, Cherokee Indians were one of the original tribes from Israel, right?
2: Well, I, I don't know. Some people have postulated that. I don't know whether that's true or not.
1: Well, I have a rationale. You know, I've been going through the spirituality myself, with energy coming out of my hands and all kinds of stuff, getting answers from my Moldavite. Um, you know, I have a rationale of like the Egyptians were the indigenous people of the world, and they they and I'm actually from Waynesville which is probably near where your wife is from. And my family grew up on Balsam Mountain. And my grandmother used to tell me stories about when it snowed, she had to have to park the car at the bottom of the mountain and, you know, walk up when she was a kid, when she was a teenager, because she couldn't get up the up the mountain on Balsam Mountain. But the whole family lived up there. And, and she said she would tell this story about every time, She would walk up that mountain. She would see these panthers follow her up this mountain. And, you know, you're like, panthers, you know, what? what's up with that? And if you look at the symbolism of that, it's uh, very interesting, if you will. And they found a, a temple, I guess, Egyptian temple pyramid in the bottom of the clinch i think it's clinch river in eastern tennessee and then you have the uh the the story about the whites uh who the people with the big eyes in in waynesville over near waynesville and up near uh western carolina so i think there's a lot to that i think there's a lot to people's creativity from that and uh being a being a salt to the earth person, if you
2: will. Well, I think that, I think it's important if you're going to be a songwriter, you've got to vaccinate yourself into the mainstream. I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, Seeger told me, I mean, you, you've got to observe, you've got to listen to
0: people. Uh, you've got to hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we gotta talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and, and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com unimpressed. Today to get 10% off your first month, that's BetterHelp com slash unimpressed
2: have your eyes open and and be sensitive to what's going on around you uh, for instance when I was working as a carpenter on one of the big jobs that, uh I was listening one day to this old carpenter talk, and he says, you know, about all a working man can hope for these days is to is just to keep a roof over his head, a few beans on his table, and make the payment on his pickup truck. He said, we're all just trying like the devil. And I listened to that, and I would, I would listen to things like that, and I would come and I'd find myself putting them into my songs. And I wrote this song called "Trying Like the Devil. You know, hot-bellied truckers drinking coffee with a red-headed waitress named Louise, the jukeboxes playing with a pinball machine a lonesome highway harmony and he says you know we're just reaching for the stars in this honky tonkin bar with a lot of lonely people just like me trying to forget all the things that we regret trying like the devil to be free you know and so I would I would listen to what people said and I would find inspiration for my songs it's just like the song I wrote are they going to make us outlaws again that was during the first uh arab oil embargo back in 76 and and, uh, the truckers were blockading the highway up in kentucky the semi truck drivers and there was a young Reporter that came out there and he stuck a microphone up in one of these truckers' faces and he said, "Do you all realize you're breaking the law?" And this truck driver I thought was going to bite his head off and he says, "Sonny, I'll tell you, when when a, a guy can't feed his family, he's going to break the law." And and so I I thought, well, you know, there's a song in that, you know, and I I, I wrote, "Are they going to make us outlaws again?" Mm-hmm. And uh, that song is still played today. In fact, uh, they just put it in a movie last year. for so the movie? It was a it was a movie, uh, let me think of the name of it. Was It was about a young girl that got pregnant and uh, was having a difficult time. I think it was called Unpregnant. I think that was the name of the movie. You know, if you, if you listen to people and you're sensitive to it, I mean, I've always been an artist. I probably was never commercial enough. In my mind to be the record companies don't really want artists they want acts mm-hmm. you know they want somebody who can be an act and, and i'm not an act i mean i'm an artist and i've always written from my heart i've never written for the charts and uh, the same as woody guthrie did and uh, as i've gotten older i mean that's my trademark and that's what people seem to appreciate in my work is is the honesty
1: of it well don't you think there's more don't you think there's more relatability if you do something that comes from the heart? Don't you think people can resonate more to that type of uh, narrative?
2: Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that the commercial songs, you know every now and then something doesn't fall through the cracks it's absolute genius because it does i think of uh, that bobby braddock song that uh, george jones recorded he stopped loving her today i thought that was an incredible song so i mean it's not that the commercial part of it you know doesn't have great stuff too but i think that at least for me uh, i have to write something that i feel is 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 from my heart because what's in my heart is also in the hearts of a lot of people. You know, I'm no different from anybody else. I mean, the things that I can relate to other people can relate to as well. I also, expand my subject matters like you know the songs i've written about native americans the the songs i've written about you know the social aspects of our culture you know like migrant jesse sawyer on my third album was a song about migrant workers you know country music doesn't have much use for that kind of material and but you know it didn't matter to me i don't care you know i'm writing because i have to write i'm not writing to try and get a music publishing deal i'm not writing to try to get you know become a star i'm writing the same way Woody Guthrie wrote. I'm writing about our people and the land we live in. It's problems. It's you know this, that, and the other. You know.
1: What do you have today that could that you've written that would translate to a young artist?
2: Well, probably just about anything I've written would translate to a young artist. You know, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it, I mean, if if he's an artist, I mean, if he's just mm-hmm. an act, you know, he's going to be following. It commercial guidelines of the business
1: because I you know I kind of we kind of do things out the box you know it's uh we have a pretty big position of influence I think today it's about position of influence and you know I, I took a blueprint that I did in comedy that I'm using in country music and because we have the numbers I mean we reach we're a meta media partner we're one of 30 companies in the world it's a meta media partner we reach about collectively through all our outlets we reach about a hundred million people a month. So it's kind of, we've created this own universe and you know, it kind of lets the talent kind of be true to who they are because we have the eyeballs, you know, the, the conversion is the eyeballs. And I think if you can find a position like that today and build value, you can somewhat write your own rules. I think in the past, maybe you were more adhered to the industry because you didn't have as many outlets, if you will. Now I'll say this, I'll say the, I'll say the market is diluted with a bunch of nonsense there's a lot of people who think they're artists and they're not out there but you know if you can find the right i agree with you 100 percent if you find the right talent because it takes talent first to do what i do but if you find the right talent that really can translate i think i think you can stay true to yourself a little more if, you know and build value for yourself
2: well one of the things that you said is absolutely right i mean back in my day when i was coming up i There were limited avenues of exposure, and before a person could get their material out, they had to go through a lot of gatekeepers, and everybody didn't have a John Hammond behind them. I remember when I was up to see Hammond, he gave me these two albums. He says, these are albums by a young artist I've signed. He's not selling right now but I, he says i know he will he's a tremendous talent his name was bruce springsteen and so i he gave me his first two albums to take home with me but everybody doesn't have somebody like that at a record level because there are very few people like that at a record and today with social media and all the other avenues of exposure that didn't exist back in my day i mean what you're saying is is absolutely true there's it's it's all about exposure mm-hmm. uh, in other was you know, one of the ways to that you could break as an act back then or as an artist was to perform in front of thousands of people and if you had any talent at all in in your music you were you were going to be established like i remember uh, jimmy buffett who i always thought was a tremendous songwriter he was with a manager here in nashville and he got the opportunity to go with Irving Azov's management company and Azov put him on tour in front of the Eagles as their opening act. Well, all of a sudden you're playing, you know, stadiums mm-hmm. and thousands of people are seeing it. Well, you know, if you've got any talent at all and thousands of people are going to see you, you know, you're going to establish yourself as an act and Jimmy's mm-hmm. become a huge act, you know, I mean, just, but that's how it all happened. So exposure, you know, it's like one time I was out in Los Angeles with the company and they took me to a, a, a concert at the Greek theater and, and, in Los Angeles there and it holds about 5,000 people and it was sold out it was a concert by the band and uh, the opening act for the band was Leon Redbone and I was thinking to myself well why the hell didn't Capitol have me and my band opening this show in front of 5,000 people you know instead of sending us out there playing these little clubs that are you know, you know, maybe you'd have nine people or maybe you'd have two hundred people in these little clubs. Mm-hmm. The people have to be exposed to your music. And exposure is is golden. Exposure is the thing that, that lets people know that you exist. Of course, demographics have a lot to do with it too. Um, back in my day when I was coming up, rock and roll was the moneymaker. That was the money spigot for the record companies. I mean, when I was on capital, Bob Steger was on capital. You know, I mean, that was how they made their money. They they just didn't do much for their country. Country artists that people signed out of Nashville at the time and um, but as as the as the audience for that rock and roll at that time back in the 70s got a little older and they they took real jobs they got married they had children they bought minivans their lives changed and all of a sudden that huge demographic of baby boomers moved on to something that was a little bit more relatable to their existence the stories in country music Mm -hmm. you know and 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 so Demographics have a a lot to do with with where the record companies spend their money. And at that time, they weren't spending much on on their country acts because the audience for the country acts was a bunch of old people who didn't buy many records, you know, who listened to the radio. It just wasn't worth investing in it at that time. Now, today, Jimmy Bowen, who was here in Nashville, told the record labels, he says, if if you want to have hit records, he says, you need to spend the same amount of money recording them, the same amount of money releasing them, the same amount of money promoting them that you do with your pop and rock acts. He says, if you'll do that, you'll have some hits on country music. And of course, you know, he was in charge of Capitol Records when Garth Brooks was coming up.
0: Mm -hmm. And,
2: you know, Garth was in the right place with the right thing at the right time. And, you know, the rest is history. Demographics has a great deal. I mean, each generation wants their own artist to discover, to enjoy. And as each generation moves through that early phase of youth where music is very important to them uh, they find their own acts to follow i mean there's a new generation right now in country music a lot of them i don't even know who they are Mm -hmm. but you know they're, they're they're selling a lot of records because they're promoting them and they're recording them expensively they spend a lot of money in those sessions
1: and what do you think back in the day the cost to do one song compared to the cost today um What's the difference, you think?
2: Well, I mean, the budget for my second album the capital, was $18,000. And that included musicians, studio time, uh, uh, you know, everything that to do with recording it. Well, today they spend $150,000 making a record. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, they don't hesitate. I mean, to make a great record, and, and I've always tried to make a great record, I think you have to be able to experiment in the studio. You have to be able to try this or try that. Uh, I was able to do that on my first album because I had helped build that studio for this young lawyer. And I traded my carpentry skills for studio time. So I was able to take all the time I wanted in the studio. And I think that's the reason that album holds up to this day. It's probably still my most popular album, my first album. Mm-hmm. And... uh Of course, my wife also has a theory, and if you think about it, there's probably a lot of truth to it. She says, I I think most songwriters' greatest work is when they were young. He says, if you listen to Dylan's work, his best stuff was when he was young. You know, if you listen to any songwriter, you know, Mickey Newberry, you know, Bob Dylan, Springsteen. I mean, not that I can't write great songs today, but it's not just the song, it's the pure energy of youth. I mean, your brain, as you get old, is still the same brain. I still feel the same way that I did when I was 20 years old. I still think the same way. I still think about things. I still digest things. But your body doesn't have the energy that you have when you're a young person. And it's that tremendous energy that you bring to your art that I think makes it so potent when you're a young person.
1: Do you work with any acts today? You said you're involved with uh, going out to L.A. and trying well, to find… That
2: I'm I'm on the negotiating committee with uh, the sag after union that negotiates the recording deals, uh, recording contracts for singers, uh, because the SAG-AFTRA represents the singers. The AF of M represents musicians. And my dear friend Dave Pomeroy here, who's a tremendous bass player and has played with me for 20 years, is president of the Musicians' Union, and he's doing a lot for the musicians here in Nashville. But I'm on the negotiating committee for the singers with SAG-AFTRA, and I have been for about the last 15 years. And we go through negotiating sessions with all the attorneys from all the record labels, you know, trying to get fair treatment uh, and compensation for the people that sing on these records. And that's what I was supposed to go to L.A. for, but I've got to have my cataract in my left eye taken care of.
1: Gotcha. Have Have you worked with any acts in the past few years, like recent acts?
2: no i i really haven't uh, I, i'm pretty much a solitary guy i mean i i write songs and uh and when i decide to record them i record them and release them
1: well how many I, you got laying how many songs you got laying around over there maybe we can find somebody to sing <laughs> maybe. a
2: bunch of them you know I'm, I'm going in to start recording another album uh, april the 5th and uh i had 18 songs set up and and uh, I realized my, my limitations, uh, time-wise and dollar-wise, and I've, I've, I've cut it down to about 12 songs that we're going to record.
1: Nice. And you just do you just write for yourself? Have you tried to write for anybody else? Or?
2: No, I've never tried to write for anybody but myself. Gotcha. And I've, had, I've had cuts by Johnny Cash and Alan Jackson, and Johnny Paycheck and Gene Clark and Moby and, and different people have all recorded my songs, but I've never pitched a song to anybody, and uh, they just hear the songs, like them, and record them. I mean, I, you know... I wish I had a good music publisher, but I don't, you know, uh, someone that was actively out there pitching the songs. I would probably have a lot more cuts than I do, but they've just listened to the songs, thought they were great songs and recorded them, but I never wrote
1: for anybody but myself. What was it like? uh, Johnny Cash cutting one of your songs. What kind of character was he?
2: Well, I mean, I was honored. I mean, Johnny was, was one of my idols. He was one of the people that I just, I loved his work. I mean, Johnny, I always thought was really a folk singer. I mean, they tried, he tried to fit into the country mold like I have, but, uh, I mean, because I love steel guitars, you know, I mean, you can't put too much steel guitar on one of my records, but um, he was, he was a tremendous talent, you know, and he was a very sensitive man. And I was, I was thrilled when he decided to record one of my songs. It was actually pitched to him by Steve Popovich. He was head of uh, Polygram Records here at the time. And that, that's how he heard it. Steve thought it was a tremendous, It was W. Leo Daniel and the Light Cross Doughboys was the name
1: of it. And talking about your book, I know you've told some stories about the Nashville City Blues, uh, my journey as an American songwriter—is this some of the stories we talked about on here? Is that what we're going to find in the book? Is there any? Yeah,
2: some of the things that, that we've talked about, you will find in the book. You know, we haven't talked about the night that I was Carl Perkins, but you know, that was an interesting anecdote. <laughs> <I>
1: mean, <laughs> what was that? What was that all about?
2: Well, I was—I was called by this promoter in Atlanta, Jack Tarver, who was a tremendous supporter of my music. I mean, I couldn't have anybody that supported my music any more than Jack. And he had a club down there called the Great Southeast Music Hall. And he called Jan and I, he says, I've got a show coming up. He says, it's Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins is going to open the show. He said, would y'all like to come down to Atlanta and see the show? And, and of course, Jan and I just love Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, he was a tremendous singer and everything. And, and I'd met Carl Perkins. He'd come by the house one time with Jack and, and he was a really incredible gentleman and so we said yeah let's go down there and, and so i got down to atlanta to the show and jack said carl perkins had a little fender bender up in jackson tennessee and and uh, he's not going to be able to make it to the show tonight he says i want you to open the show i said jack i don't even have a guitar with me he said oh hell he says you know i'll find you a guitar he says <laughs> i said yeah that's what i'm afraid of you'll find me something that i can't even play and so He said, oh, I know you play a Martin. Hell, I'll find you a Martin guitar. And so um, he finds this old Martin guitar, and obviously it hadn't been played in years. I mean, strings may have been the original set on it. And the tuning gears were all stiff and everything, and so I did the best I could to get it in tune, and I went out there to play uh, out on the stage, and I played uh, a couple of my more rockabilly-type songs, which I've written, And, and the audience politely applauded, and then between but after about the second song or so this this lady sitting in the front row a rather large lady sitting in the front row she said uh, Carl she said aren't you gonna sing blue suede shoes and the audience the rest of the audience kind of chuckled you know because they knew I wasn't Carl Perkins and so I sang another song uh, The lady says, Carl, I come all the way down here to hear you sing Blue Suede Shoes. So I kind of, the audience chuckled again. And so I sang another song and I sang a couple of songs. Finally, she got really steamed. You know, she says, Carl. Come down here, hear you sing blue suede shoes. If you don't sing blue suede shoes, you know, I'm coming up there. So I thought, Oh my god, you know, what's going on here? And the audience is, of course, getting more and more, you know, entertained in the process. So finally, I just said, Well, screw it. You know, I said, One for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now, go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. And uh, so I sang blue suede shoes. The audience was so thrilled, they stood up and gave me a standing ovation. Really? <laughs> and I, wow. Well, I said that's probably the best I can do. So I thanked everybody and just exited the stage. You know, but uh, that was the night that I became Carl Perkins.
1: Nice. So you opened for Jerry? jerry
2: Yeah, I opened for Jerry Lee
1: Lewis. Nice. Jerry, Jerry
2: was—I mean, you know—he was something else, man. I mean, you know, and he—he he, he was sitting there backstage in a lawn chair and drinking straight out of a bottle of vodka and. And by the time he got to the piano, he he was probably a third of the way down on that bottle. And he he was uh, talking to his ex-wife, Myra, who was living in Atlanta at the time. And their daughter was going to sing a few songs with him. And he got up there and he was well-oiled. And I mean, he just played with reckless abandon. I mean, it was just the most incredible show you've ever seen. He came out for the second set and he had a guy under each arm holding him up. <laughs> you know. But when he sat down at the piano, when he would talk between songs, his tongue was so thick that you, know, you could hardly understand him. But the minute he started playing that piano, I mean, it was like autopilot or something. I mean, he just, he sang songs that I never even knew that he knew. I mean, he sang old Jimmy Rogers songs. I mean, he sang incredible stuff. I mean, the show went on for over two hours and, and he was just incredible and he got up at the end of the show to take a bow in front of the audience and almost fell off the stage into the audience guys came running out from the wings and grabbed him by the belt and pulled him back and but i mean it was a tremendous show it was a tremendous experience you know i mean he was so talented i mean uh, my wife and i when we first got married he had about three albums that he'd done of classic country songs and we almost wore that wore those albums out. I mean, he, we just we just loved Jerry Lee Lewis. I just he was nice.
1: Famous. Well, cool, man. I mean, you got some amazing stories, and if you want to read about these stories, you can get James's book, The Nashville City Blues. And James, when I when I come to Nashville, I had to look you up, man. I'll buy you lunch or something.
2: Well, that would be that would be honorable. I, I, I'd love to see you, John.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man um well i appreciate you coming on the show i mean we've been on here i, I get to probably keep talking to you but i don't want to take up the rest of your day but we've been on here about 50 minutes and i appreciate you coming on and tell me uh some of these amazing stories and i hope everything continues well i hope the book sells well and yeah i don't know if there's anything we want to touch on if they want to find if they want to find the book where they where do they find the book
2: well, it's published by the University of Oklahoma Press, so they can order it directly from the Oklahoma University Press, or they can order it on uh, Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. Either one, it's 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 readily available.
1: Are you gonna, you gonna make a movie? It should might be a movie in that book. Well,
2: no one's approached me about it, so you
1: know. Well. I mean, you have the if you're dealing with SAG, you have the right line to get. To find you a writer, right?
2: Well, you know, to be honest, I don't have a whole lot to do with the music part I mean with the acting part yeah. of SAG. Yeah. Uh, my my focus and the main reason I remain on the Nashville SAG board is to represent the songwriters and singers in Nashville. I mean, I, I I'm not wired into the Gotcha. Into the actor actor side of
1: SAG. Well, this has been American singer songwriter James Tally.